2: you get stuffed with ravioli.
1: If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born in an Italiano and your life will be great.
3: Hey there, Paisani, and welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm your host, John Viola, and today is Monday, November 2nd, 2020, which means if you're listening to this as it airs here in the United States then you can probably hear the tick-tock of the countdown clock that everybody's been listening to rather loudly for the past few months because tomorrow is Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020, and that makes it Election Day here in the United States. And it goes without saying, this one has uh, certainly been a doozy. But we thought since this is really also a once-every-four-years chance for us, we might want to take a look at some of the stories of presidential campaigns from days gone by Ones that won't cause any partisan upset, hurt feelings, anger, stuff we've come to expect from this election season. And ones that have a particularly Italian-American flavor to them. So first of all, I want to welcome back two of my favorite Paisani who are here with me today. Roe and Pat are joining us yet again. Guys, good to be together on the eve of this historic occasion.
0: Hi, guys. Uh, Just so we preface, I know nothing about politics. (laughs) Uh, I don't know why I'm here, but I'm sure I'll say something funny along the way. Well,
3: as usual, Ro, you're being self-deprecating, but certainly your boundless humor and charm are always a welcome addition to the podcast, uh, whatever the topic may be. But to be fair, we also wanted to widen the conversation today and include someone who could bring some expertise to the topic that we're going to be discussing. And needless to say, we're all aware that we've yet to have an Italian-American in the White House but that's not to say that we haven't tried, and it's not to say that we haven't had a few paisani who've come quite close. And so we've got a special guest with us today who's the host and creator of a podcast that I really love listening to. Uh, I'm a big fan of sort of what-if history, and there's probably no more ripe breeding ground for the what-ifs than the every four-year election of a new president. And I'm really a huge fan of his show examining the all-too-often-forgotten campaigns that didn't end up at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So I'm very, very happy to welcome from the Fail to the Chief podcast, it's host and creator Tom Woodley, joining us to bring a little bit of extra insight into the flip side of the coin of presidential campaigns. So Tom, welcome to the Italian American podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great intro. No, thanks. Thanks for being here.
2: Tom, you have to understand there's no podcast as fun as an Italian podcast.
1: <laughs> well, I guess you
3: we'll find out.
2: About a lot a serious <laughs> podcast, but the meatballs are always flying here, even with serious discussions.
1: Yeah, mine's not totally serious. It is, however, just me. So I appreciate the dialogue here.
2: <laughs> We're trying to be the Italian-American version of Fresh Air. That's our goal. Oh, boy. We want to be NPR with an Italian-American twist. <laughs> I don't know if we achieve it, but that's, that's on the to-do. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the goal.
0: Pat says our polar opposite podcast is like the Norwegian Friends Hour or something.
3: <laughs> the Vukvish Hour. Tom, I can assure you at the end of this recording, you will no longer bemoan your lack of co-hosts, <laughs> oh, so I promise.
0: That, I mean, you, what nerve that you want me to leave, leave. how nah, no, no. I mean, to be fair it's not like oh you'll be thankful you don't have co-hosts you'll be thankful you don't have a pat
2: oh, just boy, oh, thank you, not oh, no. the thank you. you interrupt the a lot you can't deny it don't don't, don't
0: deny it
2: this is my last podcast i just want out announce, everybody oh boy after oh, this one
0: Yeah, that's like when my mother says it's like her last anything, Pat. That means absolute nothing.
3: (laughs) Yeah, Well, hopefully it is an empty threat. I'm sure the whole audience would agree with me. But I got to tell you, if this is your last show, it's one that I'm glad you're on with me, because uh, this is a topic you and I talk about a lot. and, And we've been talking about for years, you know, sharing memories and personal experiences and our thoughts and feelings ultimately about what it means for our community to have or not have at this point an Italian-American president, or or even a candidate on a major party ticket? And really, even more so, what do the achievements in the sphere of public service really mean to a community that most would argue is sort of essentially, at this point, post-assimilation? And so since Tom is the expert in the woulda, coulda, shoulda prospective presidents, if you will, uh, he's got exactly the info we need, because whether people realize it or not, Quite a few Paisani have actually entered the race for the greatest prize in American politics. And uh, whether or not their impact has been significant in the primaries or beyond, there are some fascinating stories here that, on their own, are worthy of recalling. But there are also ones that say a lot about our community and where our community has been at different points in U.S. electoral history. And to begin, we actually have to go much deeper into that history than I think many people would expect, because... It's actually 1928, and the first Catholic candidate for president running on behalf of the Democratic Party, Al Smith, is actually also the first Italian-American running for the presidency. And I don't think many people would equate Al Smith as an Italian-American, but Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about Al Smith and his life leading up to the 1928 campaign?
1: Yeah, so uh, listen, on every episode of my podcast, I go through and I I ask a couple of questions. I, I, I I do the podcast on... Who are the guys, and you know, other than Hillary, it's always been a guy, right? So far, who's been nominated by one of the major parties or or an important third party. And I look into, you know, not only who they were um, and how they ran their campaign, but like why they lost and how America might have been different had they won. And a lot of a lot of these cases, like you get the idea that a lot of these candidates are really just kind of the same thing. Like a lot of the guys really are very boring because they're just a politician who's in the right place at the right time—they're your Bob's Dole, you know—they're your Walter's Mondale. They just happen to get caught up in sort of the tide of history, but they had—they started with a pretty good, you know, they—they they were somebody's son, somebody's whatever. Um, they started with a pretty good pedigree, and they were very boring, and that's why they didn't win the election. Al Smith is kind of completely different. I mean, I think every politician likes to pretend that they had a rags-to-riches story you know, I think it was famously said of the elder George Bush that he, uh, by the governor of Texas and Richards, that he, uh, he was, uh, he's the kind of guy who was born on uh, third base, but thought he hit a triple, you know? I remember that. Um, And uh, so a lot, a lot of presidents, uh, you know, like look at George W. Bush who kind of affected, even though he's talk about a wasp, I mean, he's a Connecticut and Maine boy, but he sort of has this affectation of this Texas oil guy. And the reality is like Al Smith is the, the actual American success story. So there's a few people who have gotten to this point where they really started with nothing. There's not many in history. But um, Al Smith is one where it's, it's literally the rags to riches story. I mean, this guy was born right in the tenements on South Street, uh, near the South Street Seaport. And uh, I believe his father died very young. Now his father did have Italian heritage. His father's name was Alfredo Ferrero, son of uh, Italian and German immigrants. And he passed away when Al was very, very young. Al kind of went working for the Fulton Street uh, fish market. That was his job. And, uh, you know, while while Kennedy was out boating around, you know, and and like, you know, Frank Roosevelt was living in Hyde, you know, his Hyde Park mansion, here's Al Smith kind of gutting fish. And you could make an argument that that's probably maybe better training for politics ultimately, because <laughs> he really had to get his hands dirty. And he really struggled. And the way he got ahead is, um, you are probably all familiar with the Tammany Hall organization, uh, you know, Boss Tweed and all that. If you if you're up on your gangs of New York, it's in. It kind of actually goes all the way back to Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr founded that organization. Has kind of been running the Democratic machine of New York City, kind of since then, at least for the 19th and early part of the 20th century. And uh, Al Smith came up through that, and he did it by being just literally like a lovable street urchin. Uh, he kind of hung around the local saloon. And eventually met some people there who uh liked this kid hanging out and kind of like like he was in Goodfellas. He's like the spider character, right? He's like the, <laughs> the kid who like gives them their drinks and runs around and runs little errands for him, but they liked him. And so, you know, when when his friend kind of became uh the boss uh of Tammany Hall, he took Al under his wing, made Al an assemblyman. Al got kind of shipped off, basically representing South Street in front of the New York legislature. And uh they put him in charge of things that he had no idea what to do about. They said like, Hey, Al, you're going to be, you know, on, on the farming committee. And Al said something like, I, I've never even been to a farm. You know, he, he, he said, he literally was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but he found something really interesting when he got to the, the assembly that, um, and, and by the way, Frank Roosevelt got there at the same time. So they kind of grew up together in that, in that world. And um, you know, he, he was underestimated from the beginning. Um, he was a, a, a you know slighter stature, kind of uh, had had the accent, you know, didn't come from the the Hyde Park sort of hoity-toity stuff that Roosevelt and everyone else did. So he was essentially an urban hick, and everyone treated him that way. And he realized, you know, the one thing I got is uh, I don't have an education, and I don't have you know the the polite manners and so forth. The one thing I do have is the ability to uh, to make everyone like me. He was gregarious, and that got him all the way. He was he got to be Speaker. So that's his early life. He really kind of came into his own um, during the, uh, if you remember, uh, early 20th century, there was something called the the, the Triangle Factory, right? The, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. and They had a fire that was devastating, killed, I forget how many women, but a fire broke out. And that kind of, uh, that became Al's sort of soapbox. And he was able to kind of mount that. The other thing I should say about Al was that he didn't want to get into politics. He wanted to get into theater. He was an actor. And the only reason that, I think he didn't become an actor. Um, again, remember, this is the, you know, early 20th century being an actor was kind of considered not much of a step up from being a prostitute, literally. true. Like it was, it was very looked down upon. Uh, and the only reason he didn't become is because the woman he wanted to marry, her parents said, we're not going to you know, give permission for you to marry any actor. So he said, oh, all right, I'll go into politics. And so he did. Um, But yeah, so the Triangle Fire was like sort of the issue that prompted him to move up and develop his oratory. And from there, it was uh, kind of a short, uh, short distance from him uh, eventually becoming a governor of New York. He ran, I believe, first in uh, in in 18 or 1918. I think he was defeated, but then he won again um, by the highest margin that New York had ever seen. Um, and from that point in the 1920s, he was kind of in the lock as, you know, this is this is the guy. This is this is the the Democrat to, to beat if you want to be nominated in the 1920s.
3: Yeah. Al Smith is really somebody that deserves so much more study than he gets. And, you know, you talk about the triangle Waist shirt factory fire just for our listeners who might not have heard us talk about it before. 1911, really a seminal moment in the history of not just workplace uh, safety and regulation, but also in Italian-American history, when 146 garment workers, most of them women who were Italian-American or Jewish-American, die in a really tragic circumstance, Uh, many of them locked to the machines, certainly locked in the factory itself, so avoidable. And it really is a, a sort of pinnacle moment for workplace reform, but also the burgeoning idea of these um, outside-the-mainstream ethnic groups kind of looking at their rights and what it means to be defended here in the country. Now, Smith is obviously a big part of that. And it's those kind of policies and those kind of issues that he takes on that mean so much to so many new immigrant groups. He's so identified as the immigrant's son or grandson in this case. I don't think most people really realized that he was Mm Italian-American. You know, his grandfather changes the name from Ferrero to Smith, uh, the transliteration of the actual name. <laughs> and to, to many, many people, I think just as much as his ethnicity might have meant if Italian-Americans recognized it, is his politics, yeah. this ward mentality, this little guy, immigrant story, this punching above his weight class. Uh, he He's a figure that the Italian-American community rallies around. I think even if they don't recognize he's, at least in some portion, one of them. I, I think he's just a very... Attractive figure to the Italian Americans at the time and, and, and even now, right? I mean, Pat, you and I talk about him a lot.
2: He fascinates me. There's very few Italian Americans that fascinate me to the level of Al Smith. And I always categorize Al Smith, I call it the Jimmy Durante generation. He's even before the Jimmy Durante generation. And what I mean by the Jimmy Durante generation is they were the very, very first Italian Americans. So the very, very beginning of the migration of Italian-Americans that happens in the 1870s, uh, those first Italian-American kids were born in the 1870s and the 1880s. The second group is the group that historians concentrate on because the Great Migration happens in like well into the 1880s, into the 1890s, into the early 1900s. And I think, John, you mentioned about his Italian-American identity. And I think that one of the issues or the challenges that the I call it the Jimmy Durante crowd had is that there were so few Italian-Americans here at the time that it was kind of hard to maintain a culture because the people just weren't there. You know, they intermarried very quickly because they're much more Americanized. You know, they might have the, they might be, a, say, five or six Italian families in a neighborhood, a small Italian-American community, and they're going to school and they're inculturated very quickly into America. And then they begin to marry you know, uh, Irish Catholics, German Catholics, and they become American quicker. And I think that their identity is a very interesting identity because I don't think, I also don't think they received the same amount of prejudice because they were a super minority. And I think a lot of times the prejudice they did receive, and I think this goes to Al Smith, uh, is the fact that their Catholicism was more glaring to to the American establishment than their Italianism was. Yeah, I think Mario Cuomo is much more an Italian-American candidate than Al Smith would be. But if I could ask our expert, do you have in your research, because I've been fascinated, do you have any idea, because John, what, I, what I've been able to ascertain on my own independent reading through the years, is that Al Smith's grandfather was somewhere from Liguria? am I correct?
3: Yes, Genoa, as
2: far as I could tell. Because they were the very first immigrants. The the, the people from Liguria from Genoa, were in New York and New Jersey before the Southern Italians came. Not by a lot, but I would say around the Civil War years and probably a little bit before that. But do do we have any idea of the Italian background of Al Al Smith's grandfather, other than the fact that, I mean, how do we know he was Italian? Is it from Al Smith saying that he was Italian? Do we have records? Do we have immigration records?
3: Yeah, we do. We have immigration records from uh, Castle Clinton, I believe. Stephanie, as usual, dug up everything she could as we were doing research here, and she did find... The family's immigration records. Um, We we know they come from Genova, but again, you know, throughout his life, there's very few references, even that he makes to his Italian background. So, uh, you know, this is not something that uh, leads his biography. And and I think it's safe to say because his father died young and he was raised by his Irish mother in a predominantly Irish neighborhood. Uh, I think this is what his character
2: becomes. Did did Al Smith has no has? Does he have descendants? He, adop- he adopted a child. Am I correct? Oh, he had many kids. He did have many kids. Okay.
3: Yeah. And they're still running the Al Smith dinner and his foundation yeah. and things. I mean, he, he, his progeny is uh, Irish. Let's put it that way. He, he he His mom was Irish. He married an Irish woman, and they had an Irish-sized family. I think he had five or six kids. But, you know, they they don't participate, obviously, in the Italian-American community. I think Al Smith's always been identified as Irish. But I found it really interesting. Pat and I were digging through stuff, and we found a campaign song Written in the Italian American sections of New York about Al Smith and Neapolitan. Pat, did you get a chance to translate that?
2: Uh, it was fantastic. John and I have had conversations of what I call Lou Monte Italian. And Lou Monti if if you don't know who Lou Monte is, he's the guy who wrote Lazy Mary, Chillaguna Mintomata, Papino the Italian Mouse, Dominic the Donkey. He didn't actually write the songs, John. Who wrote them? Ray Allen wrote them. Ray Allen wrote them. Yeah. Um, but they're they're sung in a I've come to the term like a hybrid Neapolitan that was kind of a lingua franca since every every Neapolitan is a language, but within Neapolitan, there's a Brazilian dialect. And throughout the south of Italy, if you think any language group like, you know, Bariese is a language, or Sicilian has a language. there's You manage a sub-dialect that change from village to village. So if you came from different parts of Campania, even though you're living in New York, you have different words for things. You, you have, you're speaking a different language. And I found that, I found that if you listen to the old song, they kind of use a simplistic Neapolitan, not without that, would be like the city-spoke language, as the lingua franca for the Italian of New York. And I find that, in the same way, you know, uh, we love, I mean, John is Louis Prima's biggest fan. Louis Prima kind of speaks, I find, in a generalized Sicilian in New Orleans, like um, Lumonte's Italian uh, Neapolitan is for New York. So you go to New Orleans, everyone is Sicilian, right? I've never heard of anyone who wasn't Every Italian-American I've ever heard from Louisiana. Am I right, John? As always, I've never heard anyone. So you have a a lingua franca of Sicilian. um, And I don't know enough about Sicilian to tell you where it's from in New Orleans. And I find that New York kind of has it. And a a lot of this Neapolitan general language was used for comedy records. But John sent me this song today, and it's a campaign song. For Al Smith, like basically, let's go out, uh, Alugama. We're, we're all shouting for Al Smith. Hip hip hooray for Al Smith. Al Smith respected the We're going to support Mr. Mister Mister Alfredo Smith, <laughs> Grand <laughs> Governor, the Great Governor of New York. And I thought there was yeah. two things that I just thought struck me right away. The first thing is that it's a gold star for America because America gets beaten up so much. But we have to remember, we were so far ahead of the world that we integrated. Are immigrants and very quickly they were voting citizens. So, why do we have a song in Neapolitan? Because those people probably had the worst broken English in the world. Who were listening to that song? They could, they, a lot of them were illiterate. They couldn't read in Italian, never mind English, but they were integrated into the American system where they went out and voted. So, you're writing a song in Neapolitan to get to the Little Italy to say, go out and vote for Al Smith for president. So, it shows the beauty of the American system and the Italian Americans wanting to participate in the American political system. Wanting to be part of America and American, and America opening and granting them citizenship and allowing them to integrate, which really, you know, it seems kind of like natural today. It was, it was in many senses, a revolutionary concept for the end of the 19th century, or the beginning of the 20th century. So you have Italian Americans integrating into politics, and the campaign is in Neapolitan to get them to go out and vote. It's kind of like if it was a, a, a Spanish commercial for president today on Univision. Yeah, good point. And 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 the 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 next thing that I get is that you you find they're cheering for Al Smith. Al Smith is their guy. I would imagine a big part of it is is the hometown factor. He's governor of New York, right? So the Italian Americans, this song is clearly marketed for the New York, New Jersey audience, um, because of the language that's used. You could see that they're rooting for their hometown guy. Uh, I'm sure the fact that he was Catholic, he was he was from like a, a, a self-made man, all those things. Kind of put together to make him a bridge, really. So he's an American candidate, um, and he's part of the American system, right? He's governor, he's in the state assembly, he's running for president. But he still has enough of the commonality of the American immigrant experience—the outsider, the Catholic who's who's not accepted by general society—that he's kind of a bridge. So they're the new citizen crossing into the American experience, and now Smith is that wonderful bridge that allows them to climb over him and to participate in, in the beauty of American democracy, which they didn't even really have in Italy.
3: No, you make a great point. That that bridges so much for our community, but really so much for the rest of the country. Like, Tom, how, how, just how how earth-shattering was this candidate? How, how outside of the norm? And, and tell us a little bit about his yeah. candidacy in the campaign.
1: Yeah, I mean... So he was nominated for, for the Democratic, I mean, he became the Democratic candidate in 1928. The thing to remember is 1924, the Klan was at the Democratic convention. Wow. Um, so this is how different the parties were. Um, uh, you know, there was actually the, the, the 1924 convention took place in New York City. And, you know, there was a big push to nominate Al for that. Um, he was a sitting governor at the time. Um, but, uh, they, that was actually the, I think, I, I think it went for like something like 112 ballots. You know, nowadays they pick the guy in the first ballot because it's more of a coronation than the convention because the primaries have already happened. But back in the day, the convention was where they actually picked them. Right. And so there was a, a big contingent there that was saying, Hey, you know, Al Smith should be our guy. It's hap- The convention's happening in his backyard, but they couldn't agree. And one of the things they couldn't agree on, uh, well, the two major issues that they couldn't agree on was prohibition, right? Cause we're in the thick of prohibition al being um you know again as we sort of danced around he was always the candidate kind of of the little guy right and was making that pitch like as he's an assemblyman like i'm the, i'm the candidate of the little guy from south street little guy from south street you know doesn't want you know he he wants, he he's what they called the a wet you know versus the dries which were mostly you know you know pro prohibition mostly protestant you know and mostly midwestern and upstate and so forth but Um, That was the one big issue. The other big issue was literally like, should we, the Democrats, put in a plank condemning the Ku Klux Klan or should we not? Wow. Right. If you can imagine the the difference from the party of today. And there was, you know, fully robed and masked Klansmen on the floor of the DNC. Now, this is at a time, of course, when all of the southern states had been since before the Civil War. You know, all of your everything from, you know, Virginia down to Texas was uh, never voted for a Republican. And uh, so that those conservative Democrats were like the the one contingent that the Democratic candidate could always count on, right? So it was a big issue. And and eventually they and ended up in 1924, they ended up going with a conservative Democrat from West Virginia instead, who lost uh, badly to Calvin Coolidge. So when 1828 rolled around, it's crazy but to think about it, but he was kind of considered the choice from the beginning. And it was almost sort of by default. Um, however, I think it 's important to say that, yeah, I mean, you mentioned him being a bridge, and that 's absolutely true. I think if they had kept the name Ferrero, would he be nominated as candidate? maybe not i mean there's there 's a, a case to be made that sort of the anglicization there is what allowed him that rise to the national level. His Italian heritage, as far as I could tell, didn 't come up to a huge degree in the course of the election nor his Irish heritage, so much as the Catholicism did. The Catholicism, that was the factor that sank him as a candidate. And I I almost wonder if it's one of those things that's like, you know, when Kennedy was running later, obviously there was a big, you know, kerfuffle at the time about him being a Catholic, but again, had Al Smith not run, that wouldn't have been possible, right? Um, His, his election, you know, they didn't talk about like Kennedy's affairs and so forth at the time. It was almost like that's a bridge too far. We're not going to go into that. Like they didn't even want to talk about the idea that this guy was sort of like the son of, son of immigrants, you know. Yeah. Um, it was more the, the, the Catholicism was the immediate issue. And there was accusations of when you hear people talking about why did Al Smith lose that election? You know, rum and Romanism are the two big things. You know, <laughs> um, the the fact as as they say, or or as I say in my podcast, gin and the virgin. Like the fact that he w- he was anti-prohibition. Um, so that's an easy cloth to paint someone with. Oh, this guy's a drunk. You know, he's anti-prohibition. He's a wet. The Republican Party, um, basically put out all of this um, sort of like the 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 pr- the precedents to the. If you have ever seen like the Jack Ch- Chick tracks, if you know what I mean, like little sort of religious. Uh, religious cartoons and religious tracts that they would hand out talking about how Al Smith was going to build a tunnel from Washington DC to the Vatican so that uh, the Pope can come back and forth whenever he wanted and, and that he was uh, going to basically be subservient to the Pope and Al Smith, you know, refuted that. And he said, look, I, that's not my understanding of the constitution. I don't find anything in the constitution that says that I, that, you know, that my, my having sworn a fealty of a certain degree to the Catholic church means that I have to do that through, you know, so it's interesting in this era where now we find, you know, a lot of candidates really have to sort of step up and sort of defend their religious credentials in a way, like Barack Obama and Donald Trump both had to kind of get up and say, no, I am very religious, you know, and, uh, and here we have a guy who's who has to kind of like backpedal on that. Um, And the other thing that hurt his candidacy was his accent. Um, This was early days of radio. And, uh, in fact, I think it was the 24 election, which was the first one that to be broadcast on radio. And, uh, a lot of Democrats liked him in theory, but then when, you know, in people in Peoria in Iowa and so forth, kind of heard him get on the radio and heard the South street kind of twang and everything. Um, he seemed much more parochial, right. And much more sort of like, well, what does this guy know? What does this guy, I mean, he might know how to, how to get the South street fish market going, but why, you know, up against Herbert Hoover who's the 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 commerce secretary and has literally built all these bridges and so forth and rescued stranded people and all this stuff so it was kind of a, a race lost from the beginning in many ways however it's kind of interesting to note that like uh you know had smith had smith been elected uh it would be i mean it's it's kind of it, obviously we're talking about alternate history now and and we're into the world of suppositions and so forth the stock market crash would have hit him the same as it did with Hoover. I mean, that happened in 29. So it would have been, you know, six, seven months into his candidacy, into his into his presidency rather. So he wouldn't have been able to stop that. That, you know, that was already coming. But um, we see later, he is, he kind of, when, when FDR comes out and does the New Deal, Smith is kind of against it. Like Smith, Smith even though in many ways, the New Deal is based on things that Smith kind of piloted, from the state house. So it's kind of tempting to think about Al Smith as like, Hey, had he been in office in like 1929 to 1932, maybe we get a much smaller version of the new deal. Right. And it's a version that like maybe doesn't blow up the federal deficit to the great degree and et cetera, et cetera. And maybe, maybe that does help to ameliorate some of the problems of the depression in other parts of the country, you know, cause uh, I mean, we don't need to debate how, you know, the new deal or Herbert Hoover or anything like that, but that's one of the, for, Outside of his background, his candidacy and his election is one of those points in American history where you can point to and go, hey, here, here is, a, here is a place where actually choosing the different guy might have actually made a humongous difference. Yeah, it's fascinating to wonder what could have been with uh,
2: such
3: a unique candidate. And you, you talk about the things that got in the way of his candidacy, obviously his Catholicism, his wet support for anti-prohibition and his accent, which I think is really interesting because all of us here from the New York, New Jersey area, uh, I've been searching as much as I could, and I, I was able to find one clip uh, that gives our listeners a little insight into his speaking voice, and it's great because it's it's post the election. It's 1933 when he's working out of the new Empire State Building, and it's him talking to Winston Churchill, so you can kind of hear the real contrast between the Churchillian English and uh, his Bowery version. So let's take a listen. Well,
0: what do you think of the side of
2: straight in New York from the 86th floor of the Empire State Building. I think it's a marvelous sight. Well, it's much the highest I've ever been up. Highest for me, too.
3: You know, when we talk about Al Smith and his legacy, I I think that people kind of forget the context. You know, don't forget the Democrats were a party way out in the wilderness post-Civil War until Al Smith. The idea that so much of what he sets up in terms of a new progressivism becomes a new deal, which becomes the basis for post-war America. I mean, the guy is, it's a shame to think somebody like that could be sort of only remembered in history as the novelty Catholic who runs and loses. And it's interesting Uh, as we continue down our path of sort of Italians who almost were in the White House, the next time we get an Italian anywhere near the candidacy is as the vice president. And frankly, a woman who did a lot in her time and will go down in many ways, unfortunately, for the novelty of being the first woman on a major ticket. And that's Geraldine Ferraro, who is the much celebrated running mate of Walter Fritz Mondale in the 1984 presidential campaign against Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush you know Geraldine Ferraro uh, again a New Yorker from the city a daughter of Italian Americans school teacher hard working puts herself through law school again loses her dad early another similarity to Al hmm. and uh i think much of her legacy these days unfortunately is about this novelty of a woman running for the vice presidency on a major ticket in the mid 1980s what can you tell us about Geraldine Ferraro's selection as the candidate and that campaign, because her Italian-American credentials are stellar. She was a very self-identified Italian-American. She was active in the National Organization for Italian-American Women, the National Italian-American Foundation. I mean, she she definitely yeah. self-identified. But as a candidate, obviously, both a huge celebration for a lot of Americans and, unfortunately, very controversial, yes. based not only on her gender, but also on her ethnicity right. in this campaign. So tell us a little bit about her, how, how she gets to, uh, on this ticket and uh, what it does to the... Campaign.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the choice of a vice president is always kind of a fascinating and fraught thing. Actually, the history of this, I would argue goes back to about 1972 with George McGovern. During that election, there became sort of a current of the Democratic Party has to reach out and figure out a way to kind of make news because they knew they were or, or everyone but McGovern knew that they were going to lose to Nixon. So You know, reach out and find a way to kind of get, as they said, an ethnic on the ticket, right? In fact, Nixon had said the same thing in '68, and so we get Spiro Agnew, right? And there is a current of thought that's like, you know, there's there's ethnic, and then there's ethnic. Come on, we don't want to go that far. So, like in the in the '60s and '70s, right? You weren't you were never going to see a black candidate actually get nominated. Yes, we had like Shirley Chisholm. Yes, we had a couple of other people in the '70s. Um, it was just never going to happen. They were never going to see an Asian candidate. Yes, we had Patsy Mink and Hiram Fong on the Republican side, but they were never, they were sort of like always taken as interesting what ifs, but never really taken too serious. And the same, sadly, is true of a female candidate, right? Um, so beginning in the, in the early 70s, the Democrats started to talk about, we should really make sure that someone on our ticket is something other than a white man, right? A white Protestant man. And then of course they end up with uh Sergeant Shriver, who's a Kennedy re- relative. And then in Man. 1976, they started having the same conversation and they were exploring. Um, I, I don't know, I don't know the full rundown of who they were talking to, but uh one of the, the representative from DC they were looking at, I think Virgil Good they were looking at. Um, and uh, but then of course, you know, Jimmy Carter ends up picking Walter Mondale as his running mate. So really 1984 was the first time that they really had an open shot at this, and I think the sense was Every poll pretty much said Mondale was going to lose to Reagan. And uh, even though it wasn't, you know, Reagan, you know, is today remembered fairly well in history. In the sort of 82, 83 era, that was not necessarily clear. I mean, there was a recession. His poll numbers were pretty low. And so it was not, it should not have been a given. The right candidate, quote unquote, should have been able to come in and beat Reagan, at least in the Democrats' point of view. In the primaries, they had had a race between Mondale and Gary Hart and the Reverend Jesse Jackson. And I think Jackson's run convinced some of the, the higher-ups at the DNC, like, look, we need to get some sort of, quote-unquote, ethnic on there. And I think they had decided, like, through the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, that there's sort of a spectrum of ethnicity that was tolerable to, quote-unquote, white America, right? And the and Irish, that was tolerable, right? Um, and sort of me- anything in the Mediterranean zone was now considered tolerable. Like, you had Agnew, Right. Um, you had Dukakis, who had been governor of Massachusetts. Um, the person that they had originally wanted and talked about running was Ella Grasso, who was another Italian American, who was the governor of Connecticut. And way back in the in the seventies and so forth, and they were really trying to recruit her for better things. But then Ella died. So since we're talking about the Italian American experience, there is something to be said for at this time in history, seventies through the I would say nineties. Italian-American kind of begins to become sort of one of your acceptable ethnicities to the Protestant, you know, Midwestern America. And so really it was a case of Mondale knew he was, knew he was going to lose or thought he was going to lose. He's like, well, at least let's let's try and, and appeal to a demographic that we can win over and let's try and appeal to women. Let's make sure we get a woman on the ticket. Let's make sure we balance her get her from a different region. He was from, of course, Minnesota. So New York makes sense. I have to do the math on this. I think there's been more candidates and running mates from new york than any other state um over time um interestingly the most the most vice presidents by far and vice presidential candidates come from indiana which is strange but um but new york (laughs) is is right offensive to any candidate themselves it's it's, it's the most mild of states the most exactly it's like yeah it's the mild salsa of states
2: um corvo our our, one of our top listeners is from indiana
1: oh yeah
3: yeah we have
2: have an indiana following (laughs)
1: <laughs>
3: in our membership we'll run BFA. them for vice president get <laughs> that's
1: right uh, no but uh but i think that i think what happened is they they kind of looked and they and they realized like look we have some boxes to check here we need a woman it helps if she's ethnic i don't mean to be offensive with that term i'm sort of using the parlance of the time right um oh no, yeah and right. uh and and you know geraldine ferrero i mean you know she was not for nothing I and mean, she was a you know a representative fairly successful one but had only been in the congress for for six years right and usually like most presidential candidates have a longer track record than that. Of course, you know, we can look at our Sarah Palins and, you know, I was in, she was in the, the governor's chair for only two years. We can look at Abraham Lincoln, who had a very, very li- limited experience uh, before that. But at the time that was sort of a, a mark against her. Like, you know, it, it, she was chosen because she was a woman and because she was a woman of a background that wasn't simply, you know, white Protestantism and that also did become sort of a check mark against her, but not, I don't think, in the same overtly, um, you know, anti-Catholic or or, or racist way that it might have been in in the Smith years. But I think more, this is sort of when we start to get the current of thought of like, oh, well, you just chose that person because they are a blank, you know? Well, it's interesting to me because, you you know, you talk about the
3: acceptability of Italian-Americans transitioning from this clear ethnic background into sort of the mainstream and, you know, you mentioned Spiro Agnew uh, as uh, President Nixon's running mate. And I had worked in Washington for a bunch of years at the National Italian American Foundation. Mm. and They were pretty active in the 70s uh, in D.C. and sort of setting up the Italian-American footprint in the Capitol and lobbying and education and things. And one of the stories that was sort of a hearsay tale that went around was that uh, former governor and ambassador John Volpe from Massachusetts, who had been a successful Republican governor of Massachusetts, yep. became Uh, secretary of transportation and then ambassador to italy his name was sort of being thrown around there with spiro agnew as a vice presidential candidate and it was sort of that like which community do we do we sort of want to wager on when it comes to ethnicity which i think is amazing seeing where we are today yeah but the thing about geraldine ferraro to me is at least from an italian american perspective and maybe we watch these things historically with more sensitivity but you know there was a lot of Sort of going after her husband and his business dealings. And yeah. uh, I, I remember somewhere in my collection of artifacts, I have a button that says something to the effect of if Geraldine Ferraro can't stop an Italian husband, how's she going to stop the Russians or something? I mean, you know, it's this very. What does that even um, mean? <laughs> I don't know. I, do, I mean, who I, I knows? <laughs> Nobody knows who approves what goes on signs yeah. and buttons. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, to me, I think this is the first Italian American discernibly so on a national stage, her husband is Italian American, he is in business here in New York City, there's all the sort of stuff that we're going to talk about later with Mario Cuomo that comes with that, this, these accusations, yeah. and this very sort of subtle painting of criminality against a woman who studied to be an educator, became a lawyer, whatever, right. I don't think that would have happened to a candidate of any other ethnic group, you know, I think that that was an Italian American sort of target on her back.
1: Maybe I don't know. I think if you had had a if you had, had a mexican candidate mexican American candidate, you probably would have gotten something you know, um like I think it, like there there's there might be different brushes that you paint them with, but I think yes, I think that 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 general sort of whiff of like, oh, racketeering, like yeah, yeah, for sure, that's something that that you're right. that's a really good point that that probably you know her her background probably made that an easy brush for them to pick up for sure, yeah. and I know from reading her
3: writings and watching stuff and talking to people who worked with her. I know that really bothered her. I know that was a big mm. issue for her going in because, you know, family coming into the campaign and these kind of accusations, they don't wear well on Italian-Americans, particularly those who've gone through it in that 60s, 70s, and 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 before generation. Yeah, And it's an interesting transition to the next name that I think, even though he never actually appeared as a candidate, be it on a primary ticket or uh, obviously the general election, for me he's sort of the crux of the whole conversation, which is Governor Mario Cuomo. Yeah. Because much of our audience would obviously know of Governor Cuomo's long history of public service and his three terms as governor here in New York. But here was a guy who sort of started like right place, right time. Talk about with Al Smith. As Italian-Americans are coming into what the New York Times called sort of the Italian-American decade in the 80s, this figure seems like the most viable national candidate amongst them. I mean— Nancy Pelosi's not where she is today yet. and yeah. Antonin Scalia hasn't been appointed yet. Yeah. And Mario Cuomo is this sort of ideal Italian-American candidate, one who's deeply, deeply attached to his heritage, deeply aware of the criticisms of Italian-Americans around the country and, and defensive about it. And in all of the years that he is seen as the ideal frontman from just a Democratic Party perspective, he never opts to run. So you want to talk a little bit about how he danced around the presidency or the candidacy? multiple election cycles.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is it is kind of interesting. I mean, he became governor in I think 83 if I'm not mistaken. He was elected in 82, Um yeah, I mean, Mario Cuomo look, I don't I don't I haven't gone into an episode of him because so far I've only done the people that have officially been nominated. Um and he but he definitely definitely falls in that category of this is one of the the greater kind of missed opportunities I think for a lot of reasons. Um he could have been a contender in um, and this is anecdotal he could have been a contender in 88. In 88, Reagan was retiring. Bush the elder uh, was not a lock for the Republican nomination. He was up against Bob Dole and, and Pat Robertson, the televangelist. They were kind of shooting it and Al Haig. So it was, there was some question of like, are the Republicans going to nominate someone who is like a little bit flawed, a little bit crazy? Like Al Haig was a, was not a popular person. Pa, Pat Robertson made a lot of people scared. So there was a real shot for the Republicans to do that. And the Democrats had a had a wide open field. Um, I think, you know, anecdotally, I've heard a couple different things uh, about him not running. I think there is a sense uh, I always got with with Cuomo about not wanting to sort of like w- waiting for his turn or something, which is almost a very like Republican thing to do uh, in, until Trump, like most often the, the Republican candidate for the last 50 years has been the person who came second. This last time, you know, mm. the Democrats tend to shake it up a little bit, but there's a sense of Cuomo having sort of more of an older, older style kind of like, I'm going to wait until last when I wait for my turn. So I've heard that sort of in reference to Dukakis, because here we have um, in 88, the, the rise of a well, first of all, the nominee to beat in 88 would have been Gary Hart until a sex scandal right. broke him. Yeah. And um, but it really looked like Gary Hart was going to be the nominee. And I've heard some things about potentially about how Cuomo didn't want to set himself up against Gary Hart, right? Mm. Um, And then, as far as Dukakis goes, you know, there is a current of thought that's like Dukakis was also "quote unquote" ethnic, right? He's Greek. He had a longer track record as governor. Um, Granted, though, I will say his track record was, I think, more checkered than Cuomo. I mean, he had some issues in his that I, I think Cuomo would not have. But there was sort of a general sense in '88 that's like hey, you know, we have the Reverend Jesse Jackson, he's going to come in. he's going to be the black candidate. And we have Governor Dukakis, who's been governor for like more like 10 years, he's going to be sort of the ethnic candidate, right? And then you have, you know, Al Gore and all these other guys who are sort of going to occupy the, the you know, the white Protestant zone. So there there is kind of a school of thought that, you know, um, Cuomo sort of deferred to sort of, uh, again, not not meaning to, to kind of be inflammatory in any way, but kind of deferred to the other more established ethnic candidate in the race. Um, I think also probably the narrative of New York versus Massachusetts had something to do with it. Um, Massachusetts was on an upswing. Boston in the 80s had some serious problems, but in the mid 80s, kind of the Massachusetts miracle and Dukakis, right or wrong, was taking credit for that, right? New York in the '80s is a very different place, um, and I think that there was a story that Dukakis could kind of get behind, and so Cuomo just declines, like he doesn't even put his name in. Now, in '92, this is the big question I have, and I have no idea. I really don't have any idea because '92 Cuomo was by now he had been governor for a decade. He was considered an elder statesman of the party. He was. You know he polled very well, but he comes out and he says, "You know, I'm not a, I'm just not a candidate." And I, I frankly don't, I have no idea why that is because at that time there was no front runner. I mean, Bill Clinton ended up winning that nomination, but he was, uh, you know, he was kind of a Jimmy Carter esque character. Yeah, you know, Jerry Brown was a big shot, but he was in the race later. Paul Songis is another like a guy who was in the 1992 race who had a good shot. You know, obviously a Greek Greek heritage on his side, but you know, other than Bill Clinton, it's really just like a handful of senators. And and I, I I have no insight as to why Cuomo you know decided uh, ultimately not to run. And see,
3: that's funny because I think for us we've been hearing about the reasons he didn't run or the alleged reasons he didn't run uh, for as long as we can remember. Because as an Italian American looking inwardly at our own history and our own experience here, this moment he decides not to run in the 92 election is significant because, you know, Cuomo is the son of Italian immigrants, grows up bilingual, like my grandfather born here, but learned English as a second language. You know, if you think about Cuomo's convention speech in 84, it it goes down. I mean, here's a guy who's keynoting, uh, like you say, very early on in his gubernatorial career, and it lights up the convention. I mean, it's, it's definitely the most memorable speech from the convention, one of the more memorable convention speeches ever. Um, just a darling of the progressive movement then, the early form of it. I mean, he very much a guy driven by character. Um, I always said you could disagree with Mario Cuomo's politics, but you couldn't disagree that he showed the math. You knew where it came from. Here's a guy who graduated number one in his class in St. John's Law School, could not get hired in any of the top fifty New York law firms because he was Italian. Some of them actually told him that a name like his, you know, wouldn't fly in the firm. Goes to work in Brooklyn, defends the corona fighting sixty nine, sixty nine homeowners in Corona Queens who are going to be evicted for development and, and wins. He's just a man of he, he's a bleeding heart. You can see it, you know, where he is. He's he's infamously thoughtful on how his Catholic faith that he lives and practices is reconciled with his I guess would then be considered liberal uh, political opinions on abortion and things like that. And he, he does like check all the boxes and 92 from the Italian American personal experience. And Ro, I don't know if you were around to remember in 92.
0: I was five in 92.
3: Yeah, you were, you were baby, but I I was, I was 10 and I remember waiting with my dad watching. And my dad was a fan of George HW Bush because my dad had served in the military, had been reserved during Gulf War I mean don't forget George H.W. Bush going into the beginnings of the primary season he had like an 89 percent approval rating I mean the guy that's correct he did I mean yeah yeah, Reagan didn't have that and Cuomo was the candidate everybody wrapped their hopes around and and this was the first and last time I think we've seen even Italian Americans that might not have been inclined to vote for the Democrat or supported George H.W. everybody in the community got excited about this guy I was Sitting with my dad that December of '91, as the reporters were waiting for him to board a plane to New Hampshire to announce his candidacy. Yes, and then it just doesn't
2: happen. Oh, I remember. I could tell you what I remember from '92.
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot of talk about that. There's a lot of talk about how he sort of like he just he was kind of well. What do they call him? They called him the Hamlet on the Hudson, right? Like that. He couldn't decide whether he wanted to or not. Um, I've heard anecdotally that he didn't have necessarily. He wasn't confident that he could get the nomination. He wasn't confident he could win. He didn't want to run a losing campaign. And so he, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. There there was, there was a story about the jet being fueled up on the tarmac and he just never gets on it. Oh my, I'll
2: tell you the part, the, the real thing that you guys are missing because you were too young was the comments that Bill Clinton made about, uh, was it Jennifer Flowers that made the comment that yeah. uh, Mario Cuomo must be in the mafia? And Bill Clinton made the phone, uh, made the comment on the phone. Um, he sure sounds like he does. Am I correct with that?
1: So that I did not know. That's amazing.
2: You didn't know that? My no. <laughs> grandmother went ballistic. We all went ballistic. <laughs> I was in such a rage. I have i have never, ever, ever, I can tell you where I was when that was on TV and we just saw what I went ballistic. Because, like, here we go again.
3: Yeah. For, for, for those of you who are unfamiliar, what Pat's referring to are the Jennifer Flower tapes. As Bill Clinton's running through the primary season... Um, This woman, Jennifer Flowers, who is uh, alleging that she and Bill Clinton participated in a 12-year-long extramarital affair, and she has audio recordings to prove it, and on one of these tapes, they're discussing Mario Cuomo, and she says, boy, he's so aggressive, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't have some mafioso connections, major mafioso connections, and Bill Clinton says, well, he sure acts like one. And of course, this is not the first time Mario Cuomo has faced these kind of things in his career, And he really becomes apoplectic about this. The audio doesn't leak until after he has decided not to run. But the sort of scuttlebutt around him in a lot of circles is that he's not going to run because he's got some mafia ties to hide and all of these accusations that just reek of anti-Italianism and really small-mindedness. And it's really interesting because uh, at an event he did not too long before his passing, where he actually watched The Godfather for the first time. He was very famous for refusing to watch The Godfather, to talk about the mafia. He hated these conversations as anti-Italian. He goes into these allegations of criminality based on his Italianist throughout his career, and he says when he first runs for office, he was shocked to find out that 16% of people who were polled in New York said they actually knew who he was, and 14% said they wouldn't vote for him because of his relationship to bad criminals. And he goes on to say, when I didn't run for president, there were two reasons people gave in their dark speculations. I must be an organized crime or have colon cancer. Nobody was saying I had a 28-year-old blonde girlfriend. And I think that's perfect because he's putting right in the face that if this is not an Italian candidate, there's so many other things that people would speculate around why a candidate's not running. But for him, it's criminality. And I I think as only Mario Cuomo can do, he just nails it right there. And of course, that's what everybody's going to say for the rest of history, that he doesn't run because of some mafia ties in his family tree and this and that. And it's really interesting because I think in 2015 or 16, I can't remember, um, a mafia figure was arrested and he went on to say, of course, Mario Cuomo didn't have any mafia ties. As a matter of fact, when Cuomo visited Italy, the mafia tried to have him assassinated there. I mean, this is baseless stuff that no other candidate of his stature would have had to have faced.
2: But, but let me taste you something, because I, I remember like it was yesterday. My grandmother was so angry that Mario Cuomo did not retaliate. Yeah. That he stood there and let Bill Clinton get away with it. That was the pinnacle moment of us as a people, and not, nothing happened. Nothing happened. There were no consequences. The fact that there was no public accounting. For what he said still enrages me to this day, mm. because Italian Americans and lockstep—I mean, like you know, who else? Even to, I mean, who else is still the ethnic punching bag that we are? There's no other group in America you can get away saying that you get away with saying about us.
3: Yeah, but I think for me, it's even more than the sort of anti-Italian bias or the same old stereotypes. I think for me, it's about seeing somebody that looks and feels like you in the political process. Because I can really remember how this was sort of my early introduction to politics. 92 was the first campaign season and election that I watched as a kid with my dad. We took out a map and colored all the states as the returns came in. And even as a young kid, I identified with the idea that an Italian-American could be president.
0: See, I think I don't have strong opinions about politics because my family didn't have very strong opinions about politics. See, my parents, my mother immigrated in like 78, my father in 69, my grandmother, my nonna Romana came in in, in 65, and my nonna has never voted in an election.
3: But that's not abnormal for many Italian immigrants.
0: I know. It's like it was kind of like this generation that like, you know, stay quiet, stay under the radar. Yeah. Don't make a fuss. Don't get into it. And I asked her last night, actually, I was like, are you going to vote? Did you have you ever voted? And she's like, no, and I don't want to vote. Why? They want money. (laughs)
2: And I'm like, no, "No,
0: it's not a pay thing. It's just, you know, a nice thing. She's like, no, I don't want anybody to see me. I don't want people to know who I vote for. You know, I don't want to get involved. Don't get involved.
3: That's why I think his candidacy meant something to the community, because I got the sense that this was the kind of guy that could excite those people who were immigrants or children of immigrants who were detached from the political process, didn't see, you know, we talk about that a lot, like seeing yourself as a young person or or at any age, in this process means something. It inspires something. Seeing a, a, I don't want to say necessarily a role model, but a would-be comparison to yourself. And I think that that was a big letdown for a lot of the community that was kind of waiting for their face, that vowel at the end, that voice that he had, that cadence that he had, that looked and felt and smelled like us to be up there on the national stage. And so I think, for me, it's a seminal disappointment in Italian-American history, that that he just doesn't get on that plane and go to New
2: Hampshire. If you asked me about 92, at least from my experience where I was and the people that I was around, the Irish adored, and I know this before we got on the podcast, we were talking about Kennedy and the Irish, the Irish kind of had this, this hagiographical adoration for Kennedy, like he was like their, their, their martyred saint, right? And his picture winds up on the wall and, oh, you know, this, this, this reverence for the, the godlike John F. Kennedy. I think the Italian-American response was different. I think it was, we vote for the guy with the vowel after his name, no matter who he is. And we lockstep because we vote for an Italian. Like John and I were having this conversation. My grandmother voted for an Italian no matter what party. He could have been part of the Mickey Mouse Party, uh, communist, socialist, anarchist, right wing, no matter... Republican, Democrat, um, Whig, Federalist, whatever the party was, it <laughs> did not matter. Anti-Mason, you voted Italian. Yeah. <laughs> you voted Italian. I mean, that was absolutely, they just voted Italian because they had a very strong sense of you back the Italian no matter what. They weren't policy people. They weren't like fans in the sense that it was, he's one of us, he's made it, and we all got to get behind him. I think that that was more it was different than the Irish all the Saint to Kennedy. It was more like he's my guy. Whether I like him, I don't like him. Whether I agree with him, I don't agree with him. You vote time. Does that make sense? Oh, completely. That was the last time I really feel that was divide. And I think that was. I think there was a lot of them very disappointed.
3: No, I think I, I totally understand. And I think you lead us right to where I want to conclude the episode, which is, you know, Nineteen ninety-two is a very, very long time ago. We're talking about almost thirty years have passed, and in the intermediary period, politics has obviously changed. I mean, you know, I mean, look at where we are now. Look at the sort of landscape out there in the country. Um, in the intermediary period, we've had Italian Americans who have thrown their hat in there. Uh, Tom and I were talking about it offline. Yep. You know, two thousand eight, Giuliani and Tom Tancredo. 2016, George Pataki, who's a quarter Italian. Rick Santorum, who people don't know is three quarters Italian, but Santorum's an Italian name from uh, Trentino, I believe. Ted Cruz, whose father's part Italian. Chris Christie's
2: half Italian. Uh, Chris Christie's Italian. Chris, yeah, Chris Christie, <laughs> If you're in his presence, he is Italian from New Jersey. It's not an act.
3: Yeah, he's Sicilian it's, mother.
2: He, he's the poster boy. Yeah, absolutely. 100%.
3: <laughs> but, he, but De Blasio ran this cycle in 2020, and uh, Tim Ryan from Ohio. Who yeah. is a very proud half Italian American?
1: Italian never gets mentioned for any of these candidates, does it? No, you're right. It doesn't. I mean, I think um, I, I think in, in in some ways, you know, uh, and we can debate if it's a you know to what degree this is a positive or a negative or a neutral. But in in some ways, uh, it does not seem to factor that ethnicity does not seem to factor if it's a Italian American, Greek American, you know, German American. Some of these some of the ethnicities that would have Rankled the Midwest, which is what we're always worried about in a presidential election, right? Don't <laughs> seem to be at play anymore, and and you know, there's no better sign of that than I mean, look at look at the people who are you know who are running, who are a titan American. I mean, like you mentioned, um, Giuliani, Tancredo, Santorum, Santorum, you know, Ryan and and uh, De Blasio. I mean, it's it's people who are uh, it's both sides of the aisle, right? I mean, yeah. there's no there's no uh, you know there's no monolithic. Kind of, uh, you know, the Irish and the Italian, we we side with this candidate, and of course, yeah, that's that's different at different times in history, right? I mean, it was always the, you know, back in the 19th century, the Irish that was that, you know, they would not vote Republican, they would vote Democrat, at least in the beginning, right? And and uh, you know, now that we're several generations in, um, it's sort of unilateral. I think you know, it, it's very possible that you know, who knows who knows what's going to happen, uh, you know, tomorrow, but <laughs> in four years' time. Um, depending on how things go. I, I mean, we might be talking about Canada. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, like we have people like Mike Pompeo, right? Uh, or like uh, um, uh, DeSantis, who's the governor of Florida, who, you know, might be positioning themselves for president of in the future. So it's, there's no monolithic sort of party identification, the same way that there tends to be currently uh, in sort of the Asian community or the black community, et cetera. Now, would you love to play bocce on
2: the South Lawn? When <laughs> well, you love yeah. to see like tomatoes Growing on the south lawn See that's you my point see that, Like big gagoots that on the south lawn Eggplant, <laughs> Bosnia on the south lawn Let's make that happen
3: I think the last guy that you might have even had a, a whiff of that Was Mario Cuomo And let's not a forget tree, A fig
2: tree on the south lawn <laughs> You a... could have fig trees from all the Italian Get Mary Minetti, the Italian American Garden Project the Italian <laughs> Project on the south lawn Everybody <laughs> your fig tree Everyone's fig tree will be the best. My fig tree is the best. 8,000 different figs, and they'll all be covered up in the winter. We could cover them up in red, white, and blue plastic bags. We could make
3: it like the uh, egg roll in Easter, you know? That could be Absolutely. the tradition, like, like the, this pardoning of the turkey at Thanksgiving. Um, but, I, you know, I remember um, interview, speaking to a group of Italian American college students a few years ago when I was at NIAF, and I asked them about this. I said, you know— does it matter to you if there's an Italian-American president? And it was me and like 20 of them at the table and a few older Italian-Americans. And I think maybe one of them said yes. The rest were so beyond it. And even when we polled our audience at the end of 2019, you know, all these respondents came back and we asked a similar question. And 40% said it doesn't really matter to them. They wouldn't jump party lines. 30% said they would. And then another 30%, unfortunately, we left the box for other and they just basically told us a an Italian answer, you know, why they would, what conditions, so they have to disqualify those. But yeah, I think, I think we're kind of past it. I think that it, the... Yeah.
2: But there's a reason why because they were never told they couldn't be. Yeah, exactly. My uncle got into a fight in, in the 1950s in Jersey City because basically Italians, as far as the civil service were concerned, were only allowed to be sanitation, basically uh, street sweepers. And the Hague administration, if I get the story right, the Hague administration, basically Italians could not move up the the civil service ladder. So, I mean, if if they're not going to allow you to move above street sweeping, even though street sweeping is a noble profession, as all professions, almost all professions are, the fact that you couldn't become a cop or whatever, how much more out of reach for those people was was to be present. No, you're so right. That's that says it very well. John, you want to run for president? So we could grow. We could have eggplants growing on the front. <laughs> I, front I, the I wouldn't house.
3: run for a high school class president. That would. Come that, we got the... a bocce
2: tournament. We got a bocce. I'm going to nominate you. Followers.
3: Like you always say, a meatball in every pod, right? Well, before we get ahead of ourselves, we do have an election tomorrow that doesn't include anybody on the Italian American podcast ticket. But surely, Tom, you've got a lot of work cut out for you because this is going to be quite an interesting one to write about and discern. And we really appreciate you coming on and taking the time with us, particularly now, right ahead of election time. And the good news for all the fans of your show is that uh, in 24 hours, you're going to be working on a new episode for another uh, also-ran of presidential politics, yeah, uh, probably not. Probably we won't know in twenty four hours. <laughs> that's <I> mean, very <laughs> true. You're <laughs> right. Weeks, but yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, you, gotta, you yeah, got to some we'll time. It out. <laughs> that's very true. We might be able to do a couple more of these episodes. But thanks, really, very much for coming on. And yeah, thank uh, you guys for having me. Yeah, congratulations on a great show. And thank uh, you. Glad you like it. Looking forward to the next episodes. All right, sounds good. Thanks, guys. Well, for those of you who have voted already, congratulations. For those of you who are planning to vote tomorrow, good luck. Uh, No matter who you're supporting, no matter what you believe, the bottom line is that we have a wonderful blessing in the American democratic system, as flawed as it can be, Uh, but we owe it to the rest of the country, we owe it to our ancestors, and we owe it to ourselves to go out and exercise that right to vote. So I hope everybody has been encouraged by uh, a view into the past and uh, inspired for hopes for the future. And while it is true that we may not know who has won this election when we come back with Next week's episode, one thing we can be sure of is we are all Americans and we are very blessed to be in this great country of ours. So I hope you enjoyed this one. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.
2: (tries) È che le nù grandomma sa bi dov'chie è m'ista fredo smitta o gran governador è noi gu tutto gara o vudalli maga a sta grande repubblica se fa l'elezione, il Presidente cagna e che sta nazione. C'è volo democratico, ma sto è una rita, non c'è per dimmi in ghiacchia, colìmme Alfredo Smith, ziemo con noi all'ucca tutta
3: la
0: gente, colìmme Alfredo Smith, Presidente, e viva Alfredo Smith!